This episode is the second in a three-part series of episodes where I explore three topics. One, positioning, two, strategic narrative, and three, category design. So I hear these concepts being thrown around all the time, and I wanted to get to the heart of them. What are the key differences? When should you use one concept or method over another? And finally, what's my take on them? Which one do I think is actually the most helpful and why? The last episode, if you didn't catch that one, was all about positioning. And of course, I had April Dunford on the show to talk through how your positioning feeds smoothly into your sales pitch to help you win more deals. In this episode, I ask Andy Raskin, Master of Strategic Narrative, probably about 20 questions. Well, maybe not 20 questions, but pretty close. I ask all the things because if I'm being honest, strategic narrative can be kind of confusing. One story to rule it all, marketing, sales, product for investors, for employees, for prospects. How do you make one story and how do you make one that's effective for everybody? Old game versus new game. Do prospects actually get it during a sales meeting? Why can't you just talk about top benefits to the buyer and differentiated value and call it a day? I love this episode because I poke and prod and Andy pushes back on some of the things I'm saying. And that's what makes it such an interesting conversation. This is Modern Startup Marketing. I am your host, Anna Fermanov, and we are in season four where I'm asking a lot of why questions and digging into concepts that deserve way more understanding to help bring more clarity to the messy world of early stage startup marketing. If you're at an early stage startup, you're in the right place. Every startup begins bootstrapped, pre-seed or seed, and that's such an exciting time, but also a really challenging time. 50 to 90% of early stage startups don't make it. We should be able to get our startups over the hump and without guessing or throwing spaghetti. Marketing is an important part of your go-to-market strategy, but you need to understand the why behind the what in order to get clarity, make the right decisions, and get results. Welcome to season four, where I'll be asking why in order to help bring more clarity to the messy world of early stage startup marketing. Andy Raskin is the storyteller of Silicon Valley, master of strategic narrative, is helping CEOs with a ton of things that I will talk about in a second. But Andy, great to have you here for the third time. Thank you so much for having me on a third time. And what I love is each time we've talked about kind of different things. So that's been fun. You're helping companies power up their the success in sales, marketing, fundraising, product, recruiting, all kind of around the strategic narrative approach that you take. Your clients include VC-backed companies funded by top VC firms like Andresine Horowitz, Excel, Google Ventures, First Round Capital, folks like that. And then you've got a podcast and it's called The Bigger Narrative, where you talk to CEOs from companies like Zora, Grin, 360 Learning, Contentful, and more about the power of strategic narrative. So you were on the show before, episode 143. Check that out. It's called How to Run Brainstorming Sessions to Increase Creativity and Business Impact. 
Andy, it's a top 10 episode on my show. I just want to let you know that it's a top 10 episode. And you were also on the very first time, episode 61, How to Tell a Different Story and Create a Movement. That was back in 2021. It's also a top 10 episode. So we're doing something right. We're having these great conversations. People love hearing more about how you think about things. And we talked about creativity last time. Before that, we talked about creating a movement. We kind of introduced to the people listening to the show what strategic narrative is all about. So this time, well, first, let me bring back what is strategic narrative because some people are very new to the show. So the person listening in may not know what strategic narrative is. So very quickly, every company wants to differentiate itself. I think we could all agree with that. And every company also wants to create urgency for the stuff that they're building and selling. The traditional approach is you have a problem. I have a solution. Let me tell you why it's better than status quo or the competition that's out there. And that is kind of like bragging. So companies like Salesforce, Drift, Gong, Grin. I call that the arrogant doctor. The arrogant doctor. Yes, you do talk about the arrogant doctor. When you say arrogant doctor, I'm always for some reason thinking of the Shel Silverstein book, there's like this doctor that's pulling out the alligator's teeth and then the alligator eats him. And you don't know this unless you've read that book and that specific poem. But that's what I think of. Isn't that funny? Yeah, no, that's the traditional structure of pitches. You have a problem, a pain. I have the treatment, you know, solution. And let me tell you why it's better than the other solutions. Right. And so companies like Salesforce, Drift, Gong, Grin, Contentful, They're doing this other thing, which is they start with what's the change that's happening in the world? What's the old game versus the new game? And the narrative structure that creates this urgency that can oftentimes be missing from the we're better than them approach, the traditional approach that we just talked about. So that's basically in a nutshell, what is strategic narrative, this different way of talking about yourself and the value you bring, right? And last time on the show, you said, The story is the strategy. So yes, we're going to use the story for our marketing, but even more importantly, it's going to be the lens through which you lead the company, how the product is built. The narrative then becomes a decider for what features we want to build next, product innovation. So it ends up not just being a marketing thing. It's a C-suite thing. It's a CEO thing. First, I just like had a note to ask you, like, who owns this work? Is it the CEO? Is it somebody that then has to work together like you do with the CEO? Who essentially owns this? If you're not there, Andy, who owns this work? Oh, that's a good question. And I've heard it that it's worked different ways. But when I lead the work, I always ask the CEO lead it. Like literally not sign on as a sponsor, but literally be the one who gets in the trenches with me to build this thing. And when we're talking about building this thing, You know, this is a question that comes up for marketers, for product people, everyone. Like, in what form should we write this thing down? Like this narrative or this pitch, whatever. And the traditional answer is let's put it in a place the world never sees. Some kind of internal, like messaging architecture thing, like messaging house, some marketers call it, whatever, where there's like kind of fragments of pillar messages. And the idea of that thing is everyone's going to come back to this and pull messages from it. Like when we want to build a a website or a sales site, whatever. And 
I found that that would break down in a couple of ways in my career. One, people wouldn't come back to it after a while, especially outside of marketing. Second, even if they did, I think it was it was often very difficult for people to assemble these messages into something compelling, you know, take them from that architecture thing. So I thought really hard about this, like what would work better? And I came to the sales deck as the core narrative asset. Although, yes, I'm working with CEO and asking them to make a, a small leadership team that will have usually representatives of sales, marketing, but also product. Sometimes it's a co-founder or COO. The thing that we're building is the sales deck, because I think that it has to work in that context. Then we can take it to investors and employees and, and everybody else. But it, it, it has to first work there. Sometimes it's the marketer, the CMO will lead this internally. Sometimes it's the CEO themselves. Sometimes they'll, it'll be me. But I think whoever is actually hurting the cats, it's the CEO who has to be the one who's really kind of architecting this story. Okay. Thank you for answering that. Just like right off the bat, I had that question that I wanted to ask you. One other thing I wanted to mention is it starts with the sales deck. That's the core narrative asset. But then it expands out to wherever else you want need to talk about that story and it's also the lens through which you lead the company, how the product is built. I think that's really interesting because the CMO role, I think I read somewhere, I forgot where I read it, but it's kind of morphing into something where you will only be as valuable as how you're interconnected to the other parts of the organization, including product and where product is going. And something like strategic narrative almost needs to naturally be tied to product because if you're telling the story, but you're not building it in that way and you're not connecting like what your vision is and where you're moving to, what's the new world you're building, you're not building it in that way, then it's disconnected and it's not as powerful. And I think that that's something fascinating to me that the CMO role is becoming much more than just, well, let's just blast everyone with some story on our marketing channels. It's not that at all. <laughs> totally. And don't we want that story to be the story we tell customers too? Like, shouldn't it be the same story, right? So that's why I always start with the sales deck. You know, when it's a very, very large company. So for instance, like I work with Dropbox, like we'll do a a sales deck-ish kind of CEO keynote, but it's basically a sales deck. There too, we we just sort of took out some of the references to Drew Housen's like uh, childhood, you know, whatever that he personal things, and we turned it into the actual sales deck. So it's kind of the same thing. But yes, we want it to be one story for, and not just sales marketing, fundraising, HR, and culture. I hear from CEOs over and over that this story, once we get it right in sales, then it works that way in all those other places. Let's talk about that because you do talk about like how you just need the one story to rule it all, right? For marketing team, sales team, product, investors, internal employees, customers, right? Retaining your customers, just one story to rule it all. But in many cases, there are multiple new ways. You could go into multiple new ways from the old game to the new game. So how do you convince someone, let's just get, for example, in a sales meeting, that your way is the new way? How would you go about convincing mm. that person? 
Well, let's back up a second. So you said two things. You're talking about old game, new game, but then you switch to your way. So the narrative is not my way. Well, I guess it is. We're saying we believe in this sort of new mindset, but really we're trying to extract it from the buyers. We're trying to get it first from them and almost say it back to them. It's kind of like you ever hear, you know, Chris Voss, this uh, negotiation guru? I just saw him live at the Pavilion conference there where I was speaking. And he talks about this concept of labeling. So when the, the captors who he would be negotiating with, he was the America's lead hostage negotiator, he would say back to them kind of what their story is. So, okay, let me get this straight. So America is evil in ways A, B, and C. And they might say, oh, well, you forgot D and E. And then they Eventually, they'd say some version of like, well, that's right. And this would seem like a small thing, but it was when everything turned and became, and the captors are, there's trust built because they, they feel heard. And it's that same thing. We're always looking for this shift that the customers are maybe haven't verbalized yet, but are seeing, or maybe only the early adopters have verbalized it. I'll give you an example of this. So... There's a company I worked with recently called Foxglove, and Foxglove makes software for robotics developers. So let's say you've built a fleet of, of uh, it could be self-driving cars or like robots to mow people's lawns. Something goes wrong, you gotta get data off that robot and get it in, maybe make a simulation of what happened locally, deploy a fix, all these, Foxglove helps you do all those things. and. Initially, when they would pitch, they basically call themselves a data platform for robotics. And they would show this kind of diagram. I'm kind of looking at it right now. It's like of like all these data things that are on the robot and all the uses you want to have. And Fox Love is kind of in the middle, bridging those two and giving you access to all this. And what the CEO said to me, this is a kind of big Series A company. I think they've raised something around 17 million, something like that. And the CEO said, hey, listen, you know, it goes kind of okay sometimes when the person like really, really knows exactly, you know, what they're, but we're often pitching to higher level execs or mixed groups that include, you know, the engineer, but also the, and we're really having trouble communicating the business value. Like, why is this matter essentially? So we went around to their customers and started asking them a bunch of questions. But I think the key one is, I really love is, what has shifted in your world such that what we're delivering to you is life and death urgent? Like get it from them. And what we heard over and over was that there was this big shift that the way we eventually put it, the way Foxlow put it in their first slide of their sales deck is robots have graduated from the lab. So used to be like kind of goodbye prototypes. They used to be even successful funded robotics companies were basically building proof of concepts in labs, very controlled. And now it's the world of production. Every one of these robotics companies is now faced with how do we take this thing and scale it and have millions potentially of these machines in the world? And so we started with that a slide that basically says, hey, robots have graduated from the lab. <laughs> Goodbye, prototypes, hello, production. And the way that I test this, like, is it working? In a sales call, 
does the prospect start opening up? I mean, you might have to say, like, how are you seeing this play out or something like that? But do they open up about all the challenges that they're facing and how is it emotional for them? And that's exactly what we found, what Adrian McNeil, the CEO, what he and his sales team were finding when they were pitching this way. And I think it's no accident that Chris Orlov, the sales guru, you know, he has a deck that he calls the discovery deck. His also, the first slide of his discovery deck is that old game, new game shift. Of course, designed so that the buyer is like, yes, this is happening and it's creating it's big life and death stakes for me. Yeah, makes sense. So this shift, we're trying to get it from the buyer. Yes, other things are probably happening too in the buyer's world. So we have to choose. One thing is, you know, I think the variation of, you know, every, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So this model, you know, goodbye prototype, solo production, it doesn't express everything that's happening in the world of robotics. There might be still some that are in doing prototypes and universities, whatever, but it sort of feels right directionally. It's kind of robust. And we know that through the sales calls enough that we can use it and it's very effective. Got it. Okay. So I did kind of ask two things in my question, right? You start with the story, but then you move into like our way and that is more tied to like what you're building. But I think the point that you were trying to make- Well, let me stop you. So yeah. not really saying our way, <laughs> we're saying, hey, there's a shift from, you used to have a prototypes mindset, now you have a production mindset. And where we wanna go from there is not to show our product actually, but to say, some version of the old tools weren't built for this. So here's where, of course, when you're doing strategic narrative or this movement thing, you also have to talk about product and you have to talk about competitors, but you get to do it in this, what I think is a, a more powerful way, which is you get to say, first, before you even talk about your product, <laughs> here's why these others weren't built for this. And you're essentially, one way to do that is what I call start with the how will use. So, okay, in the production world, you're going to now have all these challenges like, how will you get the data off these millions of robots when something happens? How will you handle the situation where the robot is in a place like where there's no Wi Fi? How are you going to handle the fact that this is multimodal data, for instance, like different from like monitoring a web server, where it's very kind of same kind of data? You've got like sensor data, visual data, image, you know, videos coming in location data, all this stuff. And it turns out these are huge challenges. And we, even before we get to our stuff, we want to say, here's why the old tools weren't built for this. And this is what exactly what Foxglove does. So we're not saying like we're better. We're saying they weren't built for this movement of production that we're talking about, right? And then of course we can go on and now we can go on and talk about, well, here's how we answer those how will you questions with features that we've built. Got it. So you start from a place of what else is out there, who else is solving this and why they're not built for this movement that's coming versus... They're literally not, I wouldn't even say solving because we haven't even talked about a problem. We're saying they're not built to get you for this new era, yeah. right? Like they're just not even thinking about that. Yeah. Versus us, like we are thinking about it. 
My question to you, though, is like, I get how investors would love this kind of strategic narrative because they want the vision. Like, what's your vision? How big can you get? How big is the total addressable market, right, to build a big company? And maybe even employees love this old game versus new game thinking and creating a movement because it's super exciting to be in a company that's growing in that way and part of the creative mm-hmm. movement. But have you found that prospects and working with your clients, right? Do prospects get it when they're in a sales meeting? Because aren't they like, well, I see the future and I see your vision, but I care about my problem today. and that's great that yeah. you want to be like this in the future and your vision and your that's where you're going and that's the new game and you see it and no one. But I care about today, right now. My challenge is right now. So wouldn't it be better to talk about your product benefits today versus where you see the game going? So I would say that we're not actually saying that it's in the future. We're saying this has already happened. So this shift from prototypes to production, this is not something that we're predicting, oh, five years from now, this is going to happen. This is something that these buyers are telling us, like, this is the big thing that is creating life and death stakes for me today. Yeah. So this new thing is never, hey, we think this is going to happen. It's happening. And like I said, yeah, you're right. I think investors do really gravitate to this because they smell opportunity by change, like the shift, they smell that. And employees love it because it's sort of, they rally around it. But like I said, it only works if it works in the sales call with sales prospects. And again, this is why Chris has this slide as the first slide in the discovery deck. It's how they open up. The other thing that I think is important is that prospect may have to sell internally at their company and they may have to enroll others. And this story, you know, if I just talk about, well, here's why this product is great. And I talk to my CEO who has to sign it, like, I think they may not really get it, right? So they are gonna need a story to sell up as well. And this works that way. I guess the last thing I'll say too is that A lot of prospects, like this is something I encountered back when I worked. I worked at Mashery, which was the early API management platform before most people knew what APIs were. And, you know, someone would come in with some sort of use case that they needed to solve. But the things that we saw as product advantages, they didn't quite understand why they were advantages. And so we needed this bigger story. I don't think we did a great job of it back then, but... We needed this bigger story to kind of create context, even for that buyer, of why these product advantages matter. What I'll say too, I guess, is that arrogant doctor approach where it's just, here's your problem, here's our solution, here's why it's better. I don't think that's wrong. I think it's just that it's it's ideally suited to kind of simple, relatively simple products in you know, markets where there's like an individual buyer. I recently bought a smartwatch and all the watches makers are arrogant doctoring me. And I round up all the alternatives and I pick the one that's the best for me. So that works, right? 
the blogger philosopher is uh, Venkatesh Rao, who I follow, calls this calculative rationality. And this is the assumption of that basic arrogant doctor pitch is the buyer's just going to round up all the possible solutions, calculate a kind of bestness score for each one, and then choose the winner. And the arrogant doctor is basically screaming, here's why you should score me higher. And, you know, the B2B buying situation is a lot more complex. You have, you know, the products themselves are sprawling, often very sprawling platforms with thousands of features potentially. You're selling to groups of buyers who have all, they have all different kind of rankings, needs and ranking systems about what matters to them, what's better about this one or that one. And like I said, also, I think the buyers often, when we're talking about something new, their kind of understanding of what matters might be based on kind of old formula for that. So here, and what Rao says is that when things get complex like this, we switch to a totally different method of decision-making that he calls narrative rationality. And narrative rationality, I won't remember his exact words, but basically we look at the world and we see how are people winning in it? How am I winning or other people winning? And we tease out a story about how you win now. And we then act on that as a kind of, rule of thumb heuristic. And I think that's what's happening here. I think that's what the enterprise buyer is going to do anyway. And by giving them the narrative, you're kind of feeding them, hey, here's the way to explain your world, right? To understand. And you're kind of also setting the terms. This is really the category, what the category creation people are talking about too. I think you're kind of setting the terms by which features are going to be evaluated and ranked. Yeah. You say you're setting the terms. I think a lot of what this strategic narrative exercise, like approach, what it brings is you are setting the terms. You're getting the inputs from customer feedback. You're not just making this up, but you end up having a conversation, let's say in a sales meeting by being almost more knowledgeable than the person you're talking to. You want for them to like get rid of their old formulas. You want to help them understand like what's going on in the marketplace. So then you kind of put yourself up there as like an expert. And I think that's much more than. So again, I'll push back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I keep no, doing do this. it. I actually don't think it works if you position yourself as an expert. Every sales methodology kind of has a metaphor. There's the arrogant doctor. There's the challenger sale, you know, the metaphor there is you're teaching. I'm going to educate you about, you know, what's a good solution or, you know, about your problem and what's a good solution. And I think there's some aspect of this, but I really see it more as you're, you're helping them make sense of it. And in a very compact way, like I said, what we're really saying is not, Hey, this is happening. You should believe me. I'm saying, Hey, this is what we see happening and we hear from people and you know we talk to tons of robotics companies whatever this is what we see happening are you seeing this so we're asking for recognition as opposed to asking for i don't know some kind of like learning or submission that's critical that you pointed that out because i think in a lot of things that i'm reading and i need to put my sales hat on cuz i have a business and i'm always like curious. I'm still learning about this. I've been a marketer for 
many years, way more than I've been a salesperson. I've been a salesperson for just over three years, right? Three and a half years. So I'm still playing around with like, what is the best approach? What feels natural for me? And this teaching, I thought would be, this would be a good approach because maybe the person coming on, they just, they want your help. They want to understand what should they do, right? They look to you. They're going to talk to other people. But Andy Raskin says, no, you should not position yourself as the expert (laughs) because then again, you're kind of treating it as like the arrogant doctor a little bit, right? And instead... Well, it's an arrogant position. Yeah. I mean, yeah. again, I'll go back to Chris Voss. So that old game, new game shift and asking, how is that playing out for you? That's discovery gold because we'll hear all these things. But it's also trust building gold because we're saying, hey, are you seeing this? And if we get a version of that's right, then it might seem like not a big thing, but it's actually huge, according to Voss, and I see it every time in building the trust. The connection is made then, like you're hearing me. If somebody feels like they're heard, their guard goes down, right? They're not putting up like, object as many objections if you hear me and like wow this doesn't always happen in the real world especially anymore right when somebody's talking and you're actually hearing them right and just like you're seeing like people do too much now in the new world think about how the arrogant doctor starts off hey you have a problem and yes they may say i do have that problem maybe they makes them defensive or you know We're not starting with product or even a discussion of their problem. We're starting about like what's happening in your world right now that's causing sake. And I think that, like you say, is an approach that puts people at ease, aside from building trust, like I talked about. Wonderful. All right. We definitely talked about just basically... One question kind of diverged into many different areas, and I'm really happy that I love that you like push back. No, Anna, this is not the way I would think about it. So I appreciate you. And that's why I like having you on the show, Andy, so that we can really like dive into things that I think other people have questions about. And I appreciate you hearing from you, like what you think about it, because it helps me to understand like, well, how should I talk about this stuff? Yes. One thing I will note is I really like your quick visual when you like draw kind of on the back of a napkin, right? what it looked like before versus with what strategic narrative looks like. That's really helpful because it gets like in one snapshot and then the light bulb goes off. So I like those images. So do more of those, Andy. All right. So season four of the show is all about the why. We talked about that. You mentioned it when we just started recording. I think a lot of stuff out there focuses on the what, the tactics, and people aren't always sure, like, why are they doing this stuff? Why are they doing strategic narrative versus, you know, another approach? They just kind of jump in and they just do it. So I really like exploring the why. Why does this work? Why this versus another way, right? And I've been working with early stage startups for over three years and developed this systematic approach. It's called Mass Marketing as a System. And I give them the process and help them understand the why, because I think it's really important to understand the why behind your what so that you can make the right decisions and get the results you're looking for. So let's cover a why question, Andy. Why don't more companies adopt the strategic narrative mindset? What do you think? Well, first of all, like I said, I mean, you're selling a Fitbit 
you know, maybe <laughs> maybe you don't need it. Although Nike is a consumer brand that really does, I think, have an, you know, that just do it was a narrative all about like, hey, athletics used to be just for pros. Now it's for everybody is kind of the just do it narrative, right? I think that, by the way, that just do it is what I call the buyer mission statement. I think the buyer mission statement is really another key part of the narrative framework. It's like, yes, there's this shift in the world. So what is the state that we want to promise we're going to get the buyer to in order to achieve happily ever after? And it's a big challenge because we have to decide how hot we can keep going. You know, so with Foxglove, right, like eventually they want you to be more profitable and win in your robotics field or whatever, right? But there's a too high level, like they're just too... So the one we came up with them was understand how your robots, like potentially millions of these autonomous sense, think and act. That's simple, like that's gonna be the different, and it's a different sort of mission than others. Sorry, that was a divergence from your question. So I think, like I said, the arrogant doctor is not a bad approach when things are relatively simple and it even can work when things are complex. The question is, is there a better approach? And to me, I call the narrative structure, the arrogant doctor is the metaphor that emerges from this calculative rationality that Rao talks about. What's the one that emerges from narrative rationality? I call this the movement champion. And in one way I define a strategic narrative is it's a story that transforms buying into the joining of a movement. It's also pitching of a movement and investors investing in the movement, all that stuff. But you know, most of us in our personal lives, we are consumers. You know, the way we buy is is that calculative rationality model. And I think we just assume like that's going to be the way that we sell is the arrogant doctor, which is what we see in consumer markets, right? Also, another way to say arrogant engineer. So I'm going to solve, you know, you have a problem. I have a solution. Here's why it's the best. And that engineering mindset obviously is one that's really common in our field. And so this idea, hey, I got a problem. Tell me the, the solution. It says better. I think that just feels very natural to people. So I think that's why it's sort of like not the first go to for everybody. But, you know, the companies that go there and I think really nail it, they have this other advantage. Yeah. And I mean, I called out a bunch of companies that are doing things like a different way. And I'm sure there are companies that are using Arrogant Doctor. And the question then is, what could they have accomplished above and beyond if they use strategic narrative? Mm. That's actually something I wonder about for early stage startups. This is separate example, but you can be an early stage startup and your go-to market strategy could just be focused on sales. Just hire, you know, salespeople. First, the founders do the sales and they hire the sales team. They don't do marketing in the sense that they don't like bring anybody on to do strategic marketing work, foundational work. And they'll just do, but how much more could they have accomplished if they did build out their fully functional go-to market team? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, there's a period at the beginning, I don't know if you call it pre-product market fit or whatever it is, where, like I said, we're asking customers about this narrative. We got to have some customers, you know, and it's sort of like a repeatable kind of customer 
target customer and have some idea of that in order to like get this a narrative that's going to make sense. So I think there's a point at which this makes sense to do. Often, you know, in the world of like startup or this seems to be around like sort of late AB is like the earliest where we're getting that product market fit. And we now can extract a narrative that's going to guide us and guide the team. One CEO said to me, I forget if I said this on another podcast with you, but hey, you know, we've had a lot of success now, but it's been brute force of me and the other founders. And now we want to enable the rest of the team. And we need this story to kind of that they're going to pitch to buyers and that, you know, is going to drive our product. I'm not going to mean every product roadmap decision meeting. So all those things. You didn't ask this directly, but I think related is, you know, what's the difference between what I'm talking about and category creation? And I did a talk at uh, Pavilion also recently, a few weeks ago in Nashville, and this guy from a category design company came up to me and he asked me this question, what, what is the difference between what you do and what we do? And one way to look at it, I think, is nothing, <laughs> you know, that I mean, if you look at like play bigger, you know, it's a, what is a category? Essentially, it's this narrative. They literally say it's this narrative of to, uh, from, and to. The nature of that from and to, I think I'm a little bit more prescriptive about. Like, it's not about our product or whatever. So I have some other ideas about that. I also think the category people, what's the deliverable of that work? I don't think it's usually a sales deck. I think it's First, usually these sort of internal documents around what is the category. But the other way to think of it too is like, I think even though the, the category people say it's not true and don't do this, I think the, their clients tend to focus on what is the category name? What is that three word category name that's going to totally make it clear that we're totally different and everybody's going to get it and it's going to totally make sense? And I think with very, very few exceptions, it's almost impossible. And a lot of these category names, they sound like that in hindsight, like drift conversational marketing. That's the one I thought of actually, when you were like, well, what could these startups have done or have achieved more of? Like there were already like probably 30 companies doing what drift was doing. They're the ones who come up with this narrative, you know, Dave Gerhardt and Dave, David Cancel around this shift in the world from essentially, you know, forms, I'm going to talk to you later to, Chad, I'm going to talk to you now. Like the idea that marketers, marketers used to be able to wait until later. Now you have to engage now. And this was it, right? But when they came up with this category name, David Cancel, he told me that my podcast, which you mentioned, he was like, yeah, I heard it. It was like, I don't know. Conversational is a really long word. Like, can, are people going to spell it right? Like he really didn't like it. And, you know, they didn't have anything better. <laughs> But now, of course, you know, I come up with a, for the narrative too, we'll often come up with a kind of descriptor name, call it a category name, whatever. But a lot of people say like, oh, we want something like conversational marketing, where it's just like so clear. Uh, or a subscription economy, which the CEO of Zwar, Tian Suo, told me like, yeah, we hated that at first. We didn't use it for like a year because we thought it sounded like magazines, like cheap magazine business. So these things are kind of like, these category names, I think, are kind of like empty vessels, almost like a logo a designer. Who, I think it was Paul Rand who said, logo is an empty vessel and we, you pour meaning into it. I think the category name is like that. And I don't think the category designers would disagree with that. But what pours the meaning? It's the story. And that's the place that I focus on 
versus focusing on, well, what's this category three word or two, whatever it is, thing after. So Gong, you know, has goodbye opinions, hello reality. And they use this term uh, and they were thinking, well, what should the category name be? Because I worked on this with them. Amit, we'd have these calls. Amit Bendoff, the CEO, would say like, well, I'm thinking about revenue intelligence, but it's, I don't know, it sounds like business intelligence and that sounds old. So maybe we shouldn't do, you know, so eventually they go with it. And it was like a year or two later, I, I asked him, so I guess that was a good move, right? Revenue intelligence, people seem to get it. And he's like, you know what? We could have said like strawberry intelligence and it wouldn't have mattered. Like it was the story and the product delivering on it that imbued that thing with meaning. I think another proof point there is one of their competitors was already saying, we're revenue intelligence. And I think nobody didn't really catch on. Nobody kind of understood what that meant in a real way. Oh, interesting. I did not know that backstory. Well, I personally love strawberry intelligence. So if anybody's building a category <laughs> and wants to work with me or Andy or whatever, and you want to build strawberry intelligence, I am here for it. Okay. I just want to say. Tell Chris Lockett that strawberry intelligence is open. Like we didn't take it. That's open. If anybody wants to build on that, they can. They can. Go for it. But it's going to go fast. So just keep an eye on that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. I just wanted to ask one more thing, though. I know like it's the AMA part where you ask me your question, but so is strategic narrative the same as category design? Well, I think I just addressed that. I think that they are trying to do sort of similar things, right? Yeah. And I think there's an argument to be made that they are very similar. I'd say the focus is a little bit different. What's emphasized, right? So to me the emphasis is that story. And even if it becomes a category, who cares, right? Like I say, that's another big difference, actually. A lot of the companies that I'm working with, we're building a story that may kind of create a niche that's not truly a category, right? Or just an identity. A good example of this was HubSpot's inbound story, right? Like HubSpot was always considered marketing automation. I mean, since then, they've kind of gone on to be more CRM and other things. But for those many, many years, they were in this marketing automation space, not creating a new category, but creating this different identity around a movement, a new, what they saw as already the new mindset for winning. And I think it was very successful for them. So that's, an, I'd say, another difference too. Yeah, I mean, we all talk about inbound marketing to this day. So it was definitely a successful mindset that continues to stick. All right. I just wanted to back up a little bit and say, like, the main reason I wanted to bring you on and to dive into these little nooks and crannies, these little corners that people don't really discuss. And they just kind of like go through their day. They look at some social posts talking about category design, or they look at something about strategic narrative. They follow you. They love it. But then it gets confusing because someone's talking about positioning and this is the way you do it. And someone's talking about category design and someone's talking about strategic narrative. And it just is a confusing space. And I'm a marketer, right? So if it's confusing for me, it's confusing for founders and CEOs and all those people that just want to do things the right way and, and make things land, right? So appreciate you, Andy. So what, if any, question do you have for me? Yeah, so I think I'll maybe, I was going to ask something different, but I, I think I want to ask you what you just said. So what is the most confusing thing to you about 
I don't know, strategic narrative or this whole stuff you're just talking about? What's the most confusing thing? The most confusing thing is like, I know that these are approaches. Like this is the approach based on your experience has worked really well. And now you help companies with this approach. And it ties to everything, right? You want you, it ties to how you talk about the product. It ties to the sales team. It ties to the employees. It ties to every investors, right? But then there are folks talking about more of like positioning, right? And how it needs to be more about the positioning. And you need to understand how you're different from those the value that you bring from those other products and just focus on yep. your positioning. And that's enough. And that can mm-hmm. play out also, but you might need to change the way that you position yourself when you're talking to your employees versus when you talk to investors. And then there's the category design lens, which is like, uh, it kind of is similar, but it's just like we just talked about. It's kind of similar, but kind of different. So I'm just trying to make sense of it all. How do these things fit together yeah. Yeah. versus how are they so completely separate and you need to pick the formula you're going to go with and just go in that direction? Yeah. I mean, I think they have kind of linkages, but each based on kind of a different view of the world and a different view of kind of how buyers buy. And none are right or wrong. Like I said, I think it really depends on what resonates with you and how your buyer works. You know, for me, the early positioning stuff was an attempt to say, yeah, how are we different, right? It was more who wrote in Crossing the Chasm, the way we're going to do this, the way we're going to get, yeah, we'll have some uh, success with the early adopters because they're just sort of really hungry for it. But when we get to the mainstream, we're going to have to sort of differentiate. And the way we're going to do that is, as he said, we're going to craft our claim of I think it was undisputable market leadership. So we're going to basically make our brag. And our brag is going to be about why our product is better or worse. And like I said, that's not a, a wrong thing. But you know, think about it. Like that's 30 years ago, the earlier positioning folks, 40 years ago. The things they're selling are relatively simple, unchanging things in relatively uncrowded markets. Cans of soup on shelves, cars and dealerships, even software back then comes in shrink wrap box and maybe changes once a year. The things that what I started finding, like when as a mastery, for instance, you know, we're selling something that's changing literally like many times a day. There's so many features and parts that are really complicated for even an end user to understand, let alone, you know, an executive at like Starbucks, for instance, which is like one of our customers to understand. And these products are changing. Like, how can we say like, well, we have this product feature, they don't, like probably next week they will, like if it really mattered, like as a buyer, I've assumed that, right? Because these things are so easy built. So what we're really kind of branding or positioning, I think, is not our product features today, but like our stream of product, our philosophy of product building of the future, because you know, what is SaaS? It's really a service. It's not actually even a product. I mean, that's debatable, but we're signing onto this company, believing that in the future, we're going to get more and more and more stuff. And we want to know the direction they're headed. And I think the strategic narrative is offering you that direction to make that choice. I love it. You asked me the question, but then you ended up answering a lot. Did I make it more confusing or less confusing? 
No, less confusing. One more question, if we can. I know we're out of time, but (laughs) you had mentioned like the strategic narrative really comes into play and you can extract it when you're sort of like late series A, series B. Andy, what are we supposed to do before that then? If we're a seed startup, for example. Well, I'm not saying you can't have a narrative and I think it can be there. It's just expect that it will probably have to change. Like we just might not know, we just might not nail it as we you know, get to learn what's going on. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you just start out with that arrogant doctor approach at first and maybe that's fine and you you start that way. By the way, there's another stage much later when the companies get really big. For instance, like I worked with OneTrust last year. This company has raised a billion dollars. They've bought nine companies. How do we explain that? How do we explain the product differentiators of like the products of nine different companies? We need some high-level glue to make sense of it, and that's the narrative. Wow. I think we covered everything, even strawberry intelligence. So Andy, you're amazing. Thank you for coming on here. Yeah. Hopefully someone does make the strawberry intelligence category really big. I can't wait to see that. Hopefully it'll be AI powered. I'm sure it will be. Strawberry.ai, maybe. Okay. It'll look something like cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Sorry. I just, so Mm -hmm. many children's themes running through this episode, but It's a great movie, guys, with the strawberries. They're really big and they talk. Thank you, Andy, so much for joining me. So you can find Andy on LinkedIn, Andy Raskin. Check out his website, andyraskin.com. Check out his podcast, The Bigger Narrative. And I thank you so much, Andy. This was a lot of fun. Me too. Thanks for asking great questions. And it was really fun having this discussion with you. I will try to not confuse you as much. And you've helped me to hopefully achieve that. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks for listening to this weekly episode of Modern Startup Marketing. New episodes are dropping weekly, so make sure you're following wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me on LinkedIn, search for Anna Fermanov, visit my website to learn more about how I help early stage startups, go to fermanovmarketing.com, and don't forget to leave a review if you're loving the show.